0: I was checking Instagram recently, and a friend of mine, who was a worship leader at a popular church, posted that he's going through a transformation. And he basically said, listen, I am re-exploring everything I thought I knew about Christianity and about religion and about God, and I've already made some new discoveries or come to some new conclusions that are out of the orthodox. And this is happening to me now. And I want to share about it because, you know, I don't think I should be ashamed of it. And it's really, really true to, to what I'm going through and who I am. And I want to bring this to you today because this is not an isolated case. This trend of Young people, 20s, 30s, who were very strongly involved in the church, who had very strong experiences and beliefs and faith, and they start to shift away from sort of the standard orthodox views. They start to to open up and re-explore, and they start to let go of some of their old beliefs. And I want to explore this specifically in regards to what I see The differences being and before i jump into those differences i'm going to give a little bit more context and one of those things i want to talk about is the pattern i've seen the pattern i've seen is that this transformation doesn't happen to folks who were lightly involved in church right if you were lightly involved in church and then you kind of back off you generally just care less about christianity or about religion you just you just stop engaging with it and these people that i'm talking about that's not their case at all they're going through these journeys where they're not slowing down their engagement they're continuing to engage deeply with these ideas and these beliefs and these problems and these thoughts and these challenges but through this engagement they're arriving somewhere else so that's the first distinction i want to make don't think that this category of people are just apathetic and lazy about their beliefs. They're very, very engaged. They're reading books, they're watching videos, they're hearing tons of different perspectives. They're able to read 10 different views and try and find, you know, the middle ground between them. They're very, very engaged. And just from my own experience, that's been my story. Growing up, I was super involved in church, I was on the worship team, very involved in my small groups, I was kind of like a leader there. Uh, You know, my friends would tell you I was the most, probably the strongest Christian in our group, for sure. And again, I no longer fit that mold, but my engagement with these ideas and with these concepts has stayed the same. So the first thing I want to point out is that, you know, I think what I've heard a lot about this group of people is this the reason why they they leave the church, why they go on their own journey. I've heard this a lot, this statement. Well, it's because they've been burned by the church or because, you know, the church hurt them. And this is like a cliche thing you hear. Where oh someone has a bad experience with the church and, you know, maybe one of the elders was rude to them or whatever, and so they sort of get disconnected and leave and they don't come back. That's an idea that I've heard, but I don't know anyone who who fits this demographic who's had that happen. My worship leader friend I mentioned earlier, he had a great experience with church. I had a great experience with church. My other two worship leader friends who are in the same scenario, they had great experiences with church. So fundamentally, I don't think you can simplify it down to just that. And frankly, I think that is a a answer to this problem that it was the one that were that's the least difficult to wrap your head around solving. Right? If if all you have to do is a not have your church hurt people and b teach the people that if they do get hurt, deal with it. then That's relatively simple. But I don't think that's what's happening here. In fact, I think the reason these people leave the orthodoxy and why I left, they're, they're difficult issues to solve. And frankly, you may not be cut out to solve them. You and your church and your elders and your leaders just simply may not be cut out to solve them. So let's go through my list. The first thing I would say that it is 100% across the board, a differentiator, different ethical intuitions. The things that the older generation is able to stomach, the things that they're able to find ethically morally acceptable, this new generation is not even close. It's a, they're they're a non-starter. Here's some examples. One example, which you'll see across the board, is the idea of eternal conscious torment, hell being eternal conscious torment, you will not find someone in this demographic who believes that. And if you really drill down to why, in the end, it's gonna be listen, I just, I couldn't believe it. I, I don't as a human, I don't have the option to believe this and be okay with it. That's just not an option I have. I, I wish I could maybe, you know, but my intuitions are just recoil at that in the same way you'd recoil at, you know, a child sacrifice or something. Right? Another example where these ethical intuitions come into play is uh in terms of things like the atonement. If, if you look at the kind of standard, uh, uh, one of the standard views of atonement, which is, you know, someone needs to be punished for this sin. So God punishes Jesus instead of us. So we don't have to take the punishment. That view on the atonement, you will not find that accepted by anybody in this demographic, because again, it just goes against our ethical intuitions. The ethical intuition being A, that this punishment is deserved and B, being that it makes any sense that God's wrath would be calmed by him killing somebody who wasn't guilty. It's just, again, I'll go into the detail of the specific arguments later, but I'm just trying to give you a feel. The point of this is to help you empathize with their views. When they hear that standard that view of the atonement, it's just it's it's so obviously gut level not right. There's no way that's right. And so if you ask these people, hey, why did Jesus come? They will give you a very different answer. They will give you a very different answer, and it will not include anything about you know, God's wrath needing to be satisfied. That just simply will not come up. And if you ask them about hell, eternal conscious torment will not come up. Another, the final example I would give here is in terms of understanding, you know, Old Testament genocide, where God commands Israelites to commit genocide. If you ask this group of people, hey, what, explain that. They're, they're not going to tell you, yes, God did that. And yes, it was okay for him to do that. And here's why. Rather, they're going to fall back to a view, perhaps of, um, you know, the people in the Old Testament misheard God, or that this, this was understood at the time to just be a metaphor, like, this is just what you say about your God, that kind of thing. But on these three main issues, hell, atonement, and, you know, Old Testament genocide, that they're, they're not taking the Orthodox view. And it's, it's not for lack of hearing the arguments justifying it. If you ask the people in this demographic, to to voice the opinion of the other side they can do it really 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 well you would be shocked how well they can do it they can lay the arguments for in favor of eternal conscious torment out they can lay out the arguments in favor of you know god being able to commit genocide they can do that they can lay it all out just as well as you as as a as a real proponent could and then they're going to turn around and say and it doesn't work it doesn't work for me So different ethical intuitions. And when we get into the reason why these arguments don't work, we actually segue into my second point. The first one is, again, different ethical intuitions. At a gut level, it doesn't work for them. And the second key difference is they have a distrust of apologetics. A distrust of apologetics. Now... That sounds almost weird. Like apologetics is just, you know, defending the faith, right? Well, let me lay out a sort of a wider context for what people in this, in this demographic are exposed to. They're exposed to, for example, Mormon apologists. They are exposed to Catholic apologists. They're exposed to UFO Apologists and alien apologists, they are exposed to mind readers and psychics. and under this context, under this wide apologetic context, sits Christian apologetics, and the the general feeling and the vibe they have, the sense they have is that the apologetics used in Christianity aren't. Indiscernible are, are the same as the apologetics that the Long Island medium uses to explain when she gets uh, uh, you know, a reading wrong they're the same that Mormons use to explain why you know, why there are you know, conflicts in the Book of Mormon or whatever the fact is that this demographic just by being online, by being interested in religion, they've been exposed to so many different apologetics and so many different explanations and people trying to explain away contradictions and conflicts and issues that when when a Christian comes along, a Christian apologist, and they give an apologist answer, it just, it sounds so unconvincing. So one quick example would be, you know, the view of, the view that there are no that the some I don't know exactly how to phrase it but the few that the writers of the bible didn't make mistakes right so for example you know when you have two different uh accounts of how Judas died and one of them he he um hung himself and one of them you know he fell and all his, his guts spilled out to this demographic that's just that's just a contradiction and again they are familiar with the apologetics right they can they can recite to you what the apologist will say in response to that they'll tell you oh listen and i know you're going to say that well listen you know it's actually two different writers it's the same account he was hung and then his body rotted and then he fell and then his guts spilled out and the reason the two different writers are trying to say different things is because of the theological significance and one of them was a doctor so he's going to get the doctor answer they can recite that apologetic but to them it it sounds like what it sounds like when you're trying to explain away a contradiction it sounds like an apologetic for you know uh, a mormon when there's a contradiction in their scripture it sounds like an it, you know it just sounds the same and the older generation has doesn't isn't exposed to apologetics outside of Christianity. They don't have these conversations with people who believe in chakras and and Mormonism and healing and you know, Christian science and all this stuff. But this generation does and they, they compare these explanations and they say, listen, that's just not a good explanation. Right? They just have a distrust of apologetics. There is a little bell that goes off when you start talking like an apologist and it turns them off. It turns them off. Another example would be, you know, in reference to Old Testament genocide, if you if an apologist tries to explain how it's actually it's acceptable for God to to do this sort of thing, again, the apologist bells start going off. And it it to them, it sounds like, you know, Joseph Smith had many wives and they were underage. They were underage wives. And what a Mormon will say, Mormon apologist will say, Well, you gotta understand there's nothing wrong with being married as long as there's to an underage person because it was protecting them, and you gotta realize that, that you know there was we don't have any record of sexual relations between them. This shouldn't this demographic doesn't buy that. And when you give apologetics for why God could commit genocide. It sounds the same. If they don't buy it, and frankly, they think it's kind of insulting to their intelligence. And again, just to be clear, they've heard the apologetics. They're familiar with the arguments. It's not that they're ignorant of responses. They've heard the responses, and they don't buy them. They don't work. So this tends to make things like biblical inerrancy, which, by the way, is a is Makes things very simple. You just believe everything the Bible says. And you, you know, you don't really have to do all this work of interpreting it and whatever. You just you believe it. That's gone kind out of the window. So we do bump into this problem, which is, you know, where's where does this authority come from? Where do we trust? And it's certainly the case that. They believe they can't trust in a plain reading of the Bible. In other words, they can't take what the Bible says as a given they can't take it for granted. If the Bible says, you know, God desires all men to be saved, they know that they they just can't take that at face value, they have to find some expert and who can tell them the original Hebrew and then like that but but it just seems like it seems like there really is no authority that can really tell them what the Bible's saying. And it just seems like a wash. It seems like there's no way to really know. How do we know how do we know what the truth is? Because one person says, well, the underlying Hebrew means this, and one person says the underlying Hebrew means that. The Bible, from a plain reading, definitely conflicts, and you have to resort to underlying uh language for it to make sense at all. But, again, how do you know what that underlying language means? Right? And they just think that of all the different ways to interpret the Bible, none of them seem very, they all seem like they might work, but how do you pick one? In conclusion, the apologetics that Christianity has grown, and, frankly, any movement grows as doubts are increased, they find it very unappealing. They find it unattractive, they find it unconvincing, and they find it a little bit uh, insulting to their intelligence. So the the first one, again, different ethical intuitions. Second one, distrust with apologetic answers. Distrust with apologetics. The third one, which I think might be slightly less common than the above two, which I'm completely convinced are across the board. But the third one I would offer is A distrust in overly philosophical arguments, right? So by example, an argument like Anselm's ontological argument, which first of all, has to do with metaphysics, which is already kind of like, seems to this demographic to be very suspect in terms of, you know, how it applies to reality. Anselm's ontological argument, well, you know, we'll, we'll talk about, you know, how God is the greatest thing and the greatest thing must exist and by necessity and, and the nature of its being and exist in all these different terms. And, and and this demographic just goes, I don't, this just sounds like gobbledygook. Right? Or maybe you have an argument from, you try and present an argument from the, the existence of objective morality and you go, or maybe even a presuppositionalist argument. Where you talk about the laws of logic can only find their grounding in a mind. And you're just going to lose these people immediately. You're just, it's not going to get anywhere. They just generally think that this, 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 having to resort to this level of abstract thinking that that's not touchable, it's not testable, it's not relatable when you have to resort to that level of abstraction, you're, you're, you know, you're really grasping at straws. And to give an example, I think two quick examples to try and just illustrate their intuition. One would be, imagine there was a murder case and there was no evidence, but a philosophy professor was brought on to the stand. And he said, let's consider the definition of murder. What does it really mean to murder? Well, to murder, You may think it may mean to kill physically, but what if someone has no physical body, but you destroy their soul? And what does it mean to destroy a soul? It means to crush someone's hope of a, You you know what I mean? Like just, just imagine that a philosophy professor professor came and gave a philosophical argument to show that this person should be prosecuted for murder. The jury would be like, what? This is the wrong, this is the wrong category. Like philosophy, sure, it's fun to chat about and you know, hang out with your friends and and just kind of chat about, are you a brain in a vat? But but on real matters, it just it's not applicable. It's not applicable. Or if you go to a car dealership and you want to buy the cheapest car, but the car dealer wants you to buy the more expensive car, and he says, well, let me ask you this. How do you know you're making the right decision? What is the ontology of good decision making? Is there a how can you know that there's an objectively right answer? And they they start, you just be like, I'm trying to buy a car, man. (laughs) Uh, This is is a category error. This level of abstract philosophical, you know, conversation, it's interesting, it's kind of fun to take part in, but it really has nothing to do with the reality of the situation. And that's what they feel about conversations about God, about divine, about their lives. They're not going to change their lives based on your you know, six premise conclusion argument uh, in modal, ontolo- modal terms. That's, you know, it's just, they don't find it convincing. Okay. So I've given three sort of, sort of negative things. Negative in the sense that they don't trust this. They, they don't believe this, right? They have different ethical intuitions. They don't really trust apologetics and they don't really trust deep philosophical arguments, right? So I want to give some positive, positive in the sense of things they do. They do have an experience of the divine. Now, what, what I, when I say this, this, is, this already sounds kind of new agey. Uh, another way to think about it is just religious experience. They, they have religious experience. Speaking for myself, growing up, every time I sang worship music and meditated or uh, prayed to God deeply, I would feel him. I would feel what feels like a, a presence of a being of love. I have a friend who will tell the story of how he was meditating in his room in a very, very deep meditation, and Jesus came and he saw Jesus, and Jesus, like, touched him or something. Touched him on the forehead. People I know, they just, they have this this experience, this sense, and they, and here's the thing. They're almost embarrassed by it because because they do consider themselves to be very rational people but they have this experience and they can't shake it and they say listen I know that there's something out there and, and again you'll start to see this language of things like the divine language of things like spirituality because they don't know how else to describe this thing that touches them this thing that they've experienced but they do feel they do believe it to be true And the final the final point here I want to make is that the first half is that they have all these things that distance themselves from standard Orthodox, most specifically Protestant, Evangelical Christianity. Maybe it wouldn't necessarily uh, push them that far from something like, you know, a more progressive form of Orthodoxy or progressive Catholic, whatever. There's probably some... know groups that would do this but just generally speaking at least in america the sort of protestant evangelical thing definitely pushes them away from that but they still have this experience of this religious experience and and i think the fundamental conflict for them and the thing that we all struggle with is what to do with this experience where do i go with this how do i how do i like live this what does this mean for me and again You know the evangelical protestant answer is going to be like well you know jesus was the son of god and you're gonna be like okay why would i believe that and they're gonna be like well you got to understand that you know if we think about uh, the resurrection if someone resurrects that means they're the god and here's the evidence for the resurrection and you know you had these five people you had the people who who swore they saw it and and the disciples wouldn't lie because they were yada, yada yada and they go through this whole this whole apologetic argument for for why Jesus, you know, is the answer, and I, my people, my this demographic, they don't find that convincing. And they understand the arguments; they they think about them. They just it doesn't work for them, and so they go, "Well, you're you're not helpful. You're just telling me to believe this thing that I can't believe, and I don't, you know, I don't know where to go from there." So fundamentally there's a, there's a level of conflict and confusion about what to do with this. Right? And so for a lot of people it ends up being something like you know just connecting with with music maybe. You know, if you're a worship leader, I'm going to just start doing secular music that's just about sort of hope and and love and the universe in general. Or I'm going to be doing music that's, you know, or or I'm going to connect with with spirituality in other ways that, that seem more practical and don't require these intellectual beliefs things like you know meditation or these practices right and again at the beginning of this i said i don't know if you are equipped to deal with this because fundamentally what they're kind of looking for is spirituality without like (laughs) metaphysical commitments they're looking f- to grow and experience and and cherish this religious experience, this this experience of the divine, without having to to what they feel without having to to sacrifice their intellect. They they don't. There's nothing out there that that they're really willing to affirm about this being. Nothing really seems to fit, but they just want a way to connect with it and. and Grow with it and be with it, and that's why I don't think you're equipped to deal with it. Because you, as if I'm speaking to you know, an evangelical Protestant church, whatever standard Christians, because you you don't have anything like that. There's there's no there's no Christian response to at least in standard Christianity. There's no Christian response to okay, how do I how do I have a relationship with God if I don't believe And Jesus, or I don't believe that he was, you know, some god. If I don't believe the Bible, if I don't believe that, you know, God has these certain attributes, and you know, how, how do I do that? And Christianity doesn't have an answer because Christianity requires you to intellectually agree to these certain things: Jesus, the Trinity omnipotence, omnipresence, and these people, they can't. They understand the arguments, but they can't, and they don't know what to do, and they're trying to figure out how to make the most out of this real experience they have. And that's how I will describe the demographic.